Well, here we read. Just then, his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with the woman, him being Jesus here. But no one asked, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And they came out of the town and made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And then his disciples said to each other, Could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? Well, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Oops. Let's turn the pulpit mic off. I think that's going to cause a struggle or two. All right. So we are working right now through a process called the Mission Edge Church, which is about exploring some things that the church really ought to be about and how our church can discover and do what God wants us to do in the next season. And part of that process is studying six mission markers, which are these priorities of Mission Edge churches. And I've got a slide with a couple of those. Oops, sorry, we'll get that in a second here. Uh, and so far, we've talked about the first. And the second, live the Jesus way when gathered and scattered, focuses on the relationship between what we do when we are gathered together, and then how we are the church as we scatter back out to the rest of our lives. And then last Sunday, we talked about radiating hospitality and Jesus' call to invite people to our tables, especially people who are often overlooked. And today and next week, we're going to talk about sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And first, we'll talk about sharing the good news through our life stories and our understanding of Jesus. And the next week, we'll talk about sharing the good news through the things we do and how we live. So, here is mission marker number three, which is to have fluency in the good news. And fluency is a useful word here because it implies that you have some amount of skill and feel a certain amount of comfort in a particular language, right? That's what be fluent is. I took French immersion in junior high and high school, and I did well in it. I think if I like, moved to a Francophone community, it wouldn't take me too long to be able to communicate essential things fairly well. But someone who spoke French exclusively, if they tried to have a conversation with me today, I think they would find that probably pretty frustrating because I would speak much too slow and my grammar would be poor and my word choices would be a bit odd at times, I'm sure. Last time I was in Montreal, if people, you know, said something to me in French and I tried to respond back in French, they would just immediately roll their eyes and switch to English, right? That's kind of how that goes. So, most people, when they don't speak a language fluently, are reluctant to say very much at all because you feel vulnerable if you try because, you know, you're not sure if you're making sense or you're wondering if people are judging you. And I think there are probably a lot of Christians who feel this way about their own faith. Because there is a language to Christianity. There's one that, it's one that regular churchgoers aren't always sure they fully understand, let alone feel confident in then speaking to others. So a couple of weeks ago, we voted uh, to request that 
that Erica be examined by the Atlantic Baptist Examining Council for Ordination. And one of the things they'll be examining is her statement of faith that she'll be crafting and submitting to them, something that describes the core beliefs of Christian faith and distinctives of Baptist belief. And so, I mean, if you don't think there's a distinct language involved in faith, well, then, you know, you just have to read one of these things to, to see that there is. Here's the explanation of who God is from the Atlantic Baptist basis of union statement, and it goes like this, all right? And hopefully this will make some sense, but also there's a couple interesting bits and pieces in here. It's probably not how you would describe God if someone asked you on the spot, right? There is one true and living God. He is an infinite spirit, self-existent, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, good, wise, just, and merciful. He is the creator, preserver, and sovereign of the universe. He is inexpressibly glorious in holiness and worthy of all honor, confidence, and love. In the Godhead, there are three persons in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are equal in every divine perfection and who execute distinct but harmonious offices in the great work of redemption. Right? You've got to be pretty fluent in the language of Christian theology to grasp all the parts of that. And, you know, so if you were kind of tasked with explaining that to someone who didn't have a church background. That would be intimidating, I would guess. But it's kind of worth thinking about, you know, how would I describe who God is if someone asked me? And that's what we're going to try to get into a bit this morning. How can we be fluent in the language of our faith so that we can share our good news, our hope in Jesus, to people that we come across? So, now the moment I said that, I'm going to guess a whole bunch of people kind of tensed up a little bit, okay? Because many people are not very comfortable with this idea about raising the topic of faith at all, right? That's, that's what, like, obnoxious street preachers do. That's what scary fundamentalist Christians do. Just get in your face about Jesus. And we don't, we don't do that, right? But there are two things that we kind of need to grapple with a bit about this. <clears throat> the first is that if normal, everyday Jesus followers aren't willing to speak about their faith at all and share their good news as they understand it, well then, how much longer do we expect the church in Canada is going to be around, for one thing, right? Like, there's a pretty steep downhill slope already. There are a lot of good things we could do and practical ways we could show God's love in Jesus' and, uh, in Jesus's name, and we'll talk more about those next week. But on its own, that is not enough. I mean, we think about Jesus' ministry here. Did Jesus come and only feed people and heal people and just leave everybody guessing as to what it all meant? Well, no, he didn't. He proclaimed the kingdom of God had come. He preached to crowds. He taught them so that they would turn to God and live accordingly. And disciples try to do what Jesus did. We can't be silent followers. And the second part is, again, if normal, everyday Jesus followers aren't willing to speak about their faith and share the good news as they understand it, well, ultimately, that shows a lack of love to the people around us, right? the, the Jesus way is a wonderful way. The values of the kingdom of God show us how to thrive as human beings. People are better off living life with Jesus than they are without him, right? That is my politically correct, intolerant belief, that people are better off living life with Jesus than they are without him. And so, if we believe that, well, then it's... it's downright unloving, to not seek appropriate opportunities to talk about Jesus in the hope of showing other people that this way is a good way. So speaking 
of Jesus and his way. Let's dig now into our scripture passage and hear from him about some of this now that I've laid that down as a foundation for us. So in John chapter 4, Jesus is traveling on ahead of his disciples and he comes to a Samaritan town. And there was a woman at the well there. She's getting some water and he walks up to her and asks her for a drink. And this is extremely unusual. Partially because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans, but more so because Jewish men did not talk to women in public places. And in fact, Jewish men certainly did not have deep intellectual discussions with women. Rabbis of that time were very worried that this could lead to women doing far too much thinking about all manner of things, and who knows what that could lead to, right? Now, Jesus talked to her anyway. And they talked about eternal life, and they talked about the disagreement between Jews and Samaritans about where to worship, and talked about many other things. And along the way, Jesus revealed, well, that he knew some things about her life story, things that a stranger couldn't possibly know. And when I preached on this passage a while ago, I mentioned that I think we've probably maligned this poor woman. There's a good chance that these things from her story uh, show us that she's been a victim of a lot of mistreatment, as opposed to the traditional way this story's been told that says that she's, uh, she's this horribly immoral woman. And when she'd finished talking to Jesus, she went back into the village. She told people about him. And she wondered aloud, could this Jesus be the Messiah? And one reason we think that maybe this woman had a better reputation than I was taught when I was a kid growing up is the fact that they were immediately very interested in what she had to say about this. She seemed to wield some influence, and they immediately wanted to go out and hear from Jesus to see if it might be true. And so based on her word, they went, they heard, and they decided for themselves, yes, I think you might be right. He, he is the Messiah. And this woman, so she shared her story of encountering Jesus. She urged people to go and listen to him. And this led to the spiritual transformation of her whole town. And so that's our first pretty simple connection to today's topic. She shared her good news about Jesus. And God did a wonderful thing as a result. And notice that she was not an expert in Jesus. She had just met him. She had more questions than answers, but she knew there was something amazing about him. And so she wanted other people to know that too. It's not about being an expert. It's about having a story. But here's another thing to see as the passage continues. Jesus' disciples arrive, and they know that he hasn't eaten in quite some time because they'd gone off to get some food. So they tried to get him to eat now. And Jesus gives one of these mysterious responses that he does sometimes, especially in John's gospel. And he says, well, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. And that was confusing to the disciples. Did, did he go somewhere else? Did the woman give him some food? Did he cram some granola bars into his pockets and just never mentioned this? Like, what is going on here? But Jesus then explains to them, he says, okay, look, my food is the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying that it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now, one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. So for one thing, I believe Jesus meant that he didn't need food at that moment because he was revitalized by bringing the good news to the people of this village. He didn't mean, I don't think, that as long as he was doing God's will, he never needed food. That's not how that works. But this was an exciting moment. He was fulfilling part of his mission, and he wanted the disciples, I think, to see how important this was that satisfying people's spiritual thirst was more important than Jesus satisfying his own physical hunger. 
And then Jesus carries on talking about harvests, and he quotes what must have been a local expression of some kind, that it's still four months until harvest, which points to the long wait between the farmer sowing his seed in his field and then reaping the harvest later. It's got a sense to it of like, well, you know, relax. Just, you know, don't, we're not in a hurry here. It's four months until harvest. And Jesus says that spiritually, that's not the case. That's not what's going on here. You don't have a fair amount of time to wait around. He says, on a, you know, the harvest is now. Anyone willing to have a good look can see that there are people yearning to know God, that they're desiring truth. They're wanting to experience God's grace. He says, the field is ripe for harvest. It may not have looked that way to the disciples. They had met with plenty of rejection. The political and religious powers that be were ignoring or opposing them. Jesus had not picked up really much of a following yet at this point in the story. And they were, at this point, they were kind of just wandering around in the middle of the nowhere talking to Samaritans of all people. Like, the disciples might not have thought that this was obviously true. But Jesus saw it differently. He says, I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work, and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. See, we often don't see it, but God is at work around us. When we come across somebody, we don't know what they've been pondering in their mind or how other people have been influencing or loving them or how in some way God has been reaching out to them. Jesus said, others have already done the hard work to prepare people to respond to the good news of God's kingdom. And so he says to his disciples, he says, your job is to go out and harvest, tell people about me, about the kingdom of God, about the abundant and eternal life, and watch that message bring change to people's lives. And so I don't think that this has ceased to be true, even though our context is very different. God is still at work. He is still calling people to himself. The work of sowing, of planting seeds of faith in people's lives is happening in our world, even if we don't see it. There is harvesting to do today, reaching out to people with our good news. But just as the disciples in this passage might have had some doubts about the harvest Jesus was talking about, I suspect that you also might have some doubts about this. I have some doubts about this at times. Because this just does not seem like the time and the culture where the fields are ripe for harvest, does it? Right? There are more churches struggling and closing in you know, Canada than thriving and, and the youngest generations are increasingly absent from faith communities. But here's the thing about this. What a lot of people have moved away from is not, in fact, faith or spirituality, but institutional religion. Trust in all institutions is falling. People have less and less faith in government, in universities, in the medical establishment, in the police, in the church. And in part, that's become because of some of the very real failures of those institutions. But it's also because we're just becoming ever more individualistic as a society. We want to do things on our own terms. And so that's, that's important because if you think people in general, or young people in particular, are not interested in spiritual things or have abandoned faith, that's not really the case according to all the polling and statistics that are around right now. It's still, in fact, the rule, not the exception, for people to have some kind of identification with a faith tradition, have certain spiritual beliefs and practices, or have a spiritual interest or hunger. The need for God that I think is built into humanity hasn't gone away, but people are not keen on committing to the church in response to this. 
They'll watch things on YouTube or TikTok. They'll listen to sermons or conversations about spiritual things through podcasts. They will grab some spiritual practices from multiple religions, a little bit of Buddhism, a little bit of Hinduism, a little bit of Christianity, and they'll just kind of cobble it together in this do-it-yourself religion. Or some do still identify as a, as a Christian. If you ask them that for the census purposes, they check that off, but they're not active in it. And this is why fluency in the good news matters a great deal, because regular everyday Jesus followers can't just kind of wait and hope that the work of sharing and spreading our good news will be done by somebody else, by somebody more professional, maybe. I mean, once upon a time, right, churches would bring in a notable evangelist from somewhere. They'd have a week of special meetings. They would draw people in for, you know, whatever they wanted to call it, for gospel week or revival time, and people would come and they would hear and they would respond to the gospel. There were times and places where that certainly worked. But it's not a model that I think in our time and culture is very effective for the most part. There are people who want to hear good news. And the good news that Christians have to offer is the best of all. But the last person most of those people want to hear it from is me, standing behind this pulpit here in this building. Right? They don't trust me because, of course, I want them to believe, right? Because then maybe they'll join this church and give it money and give time to help with its ministries and build up the institution which they don't trust. That's not where people are at. That's at least not where they're going to start. They're far, far more open to hearing about the good way of Jesus from a classmate in their study group or a friend on a walk together or a family member who's earned some influence through their love and consistent character or Someone in their club or their reading group who makes faith sound like a good and life-giving thing when they talk about it. And so I still think it's true that the fields are ripe for harvest. I believe it's still true that there is lots of sowing going on. There are seeds of faith being planted in people's lives in different ways. People are recognizing the need for God and the wisdom of some of the things the church has had to say as we move farther and farther from those values and reap some of the consequences of that. And so even though the time and place isn't always obvious, as a, as, disciple of, as a disciple of Jesus, I know that I'm called to try to make that effort to harvest a crop for eternal life, which means being fluent in the good news. So here's the official description of this being fluent in the good news idea from the Mission Edge Church material. And it says, people of Mission Edge churches know and celebrate the story of the good news and understand how to comfortably and naturally speak it in ways appropriate to the various contexts they find themselves. God's grand story is one we first heard from others who passed it on to us with joy and hope, with the hope that we would make it our story as well. We're here because this story of God entered the story of our life. And so like people who can hardly wait for the opportunity to tell a piece of terrific news that we have heard, so we want to let others in on what we have experienced and found to be true. Both in our gathering and our scattering, people of Mission Edge churches want to be fluent as they speak the language of God's love, telling their neighbors who Jesus is and what God is up to. So as a response to this and to Jesus' call for us to be attentive to the harvest, I'm going to ask you to spend a little bit of time pondering with me how to tell your faith story and express the good news of Jesus as you understand it. And there's, see, there's an emphasis on story here in this definition, which is important. That's the right starting place, because 
Today, that's the only thing you're not allowed to argue with, right? People no longer feel that they should have to believe facts or history or statistics or theology or experts, really. But your story, your lived experience, that's the one thing we still kind of respect. And so stories have always been important in sharing about faith in Jesus. Now, one of my favorite Christian musicians these days was once a homeless addict on the streets of Scotland until he came into the care of a Christian mission who saved his physical and spiritual life. And now he produces beautiful renditions of hymns and other songs, leads worship, uses his gifts to help others praise the God who so dramatically saved him. Stories about being rescued by God from some major challenge or circumstance are powerful. And so if you've got one of those, learn how to tell it in a couple of minutes to someone who might be open to hearing it, to someone who's in a rough spot. How can God, how did God help you leave that path of death and get onto the path of life? We're not talking about life story, we're talking about the story of that, that aspect of life, that bit of your faith journey. Now, most of you, like me, don't have that story, though. We have the so-called boring testimonies of coming to faith, you know, earlier in life in unremarkable ways. God didn't shine beams of light down on us and, you know, speak to us in some booming voice about following Jesus. Either the church or faithful family members guided us toward making faith commitments, and we've been living that out imperfectly with some ups and downs along the way. That's a lot of people's story. It's still an important story because people are looking for something real. I mean, if you started following Jesus as a kid and you're still doing it 40 or 50 or 60 years later, that is a powerful witness in a world where everything seems so fleeting. How has Jesus been good to you in all that time? Why do you still believe, having gone through all the things you've gone through, having had that much time for doubts and disappointments to challenge your faith? Ponder how to tell that story in just a couple of minutes to someone who isn't sure which way they should go in their journey. I mean, if you've wrestled with doubts, if you've found that combining life and Christian faith has been a messy process, but you continue to find truth and value in following Jesus, that's an important story. People want authenticity, not simplistic answers to the hard questions of life. And so you don't always have to have been good at being a Christian for your story to be worth hearing either. That may make it more valuable to the right person. So think about how to tell some of that story, that messy story even, to someone who isn't sure about their spiritual foundations. Now, it's not likely that anyone gets the chance to share a whole life story with someone else, which is why it's important to have these short versions of our faith story that can be this important tool that God can then use. Now, there are different ways you could try to prepare your little faith story thing. Like, you could could sit and write it down. You could tinker with it on paper and try to get it all in one place so your thoughts are organized. You could try expressing it to a friend or a family member of a spouse, maybe another believer, and say, hey, could we each try to kind of distill our faith story down to a minute or two and share it with one another? That could be a really interesting thing to hear from that person and a way to grow together. Or you can just, you know, do it in your head while you shower, right? That, that's where I do some of my most impressive teaching and debating is in my own head while I'm in the shower. Or sometimes I do it while I'm driving, but uh, then I get really into it and I start mouthing the words in a way that I'm sure is really creepy to the other drivers nearby. But, you know, however you get there, run that through 
a number of times until it becomes easy to remember and say, you know, figure out just how to tell other people, why do you stick with Jesus? Why do you find that having Him in your life is good? And have that ready to go. And we should be thinking about how we practice telling these stories to each other when we're gathered as well in worship, as well as so that we can do it when we scatter. And so that'll be something to consider about how we come together. So in the Mission Edge material, Greg Jones sent requests to a variety of Christian leaders. And he asked them, could you explain, you know, succinctly what a Christian is and how a person can become one? If you had just a couple minutes to talk, you know, maybe you're sitting next to someone on an airplane and you're heading in for a landing and they ask you that question. How would you answer it? And I'm, I'm going to share two of the shortest ones right now. And there was a huge variety of ideas and thoughts from a, an interesting variety of people. So I'll, I'll share several more in my overflow post through the email this week. But here's two, just to get a little idea that might fuel some of your own thought process about how to talk about some of these kinds of things. So here's, here's the first. It's from a retired CBM missionary named Reverend Dr. Charles Harvey. And he says, as I see it, the term Christian applies to someone who has asked Jesus to manage his life. Jesus is God's son and has made it possible for us to have a meaningful, life-changing relationship with our creator. Jesus did everything necessary for us to have a dynamic relationship through his spirit who can actually manage our lives from within our hearts. When we ask him in prayer, he is able to manage us for our good within our thought and decision-making system. The spirit of Jesus infuses us with qualities of love, joy, and peace in a way it is hard to imagine. To initiate this relationship, humbly invite the Spirit of Jesus to begin working in your heart. A second answer comes from uh, the former youth and family director of, for our Atlantic Baptist, now an associate pastor at Hillside Baptist Church in Moncton, uh, Renee McVicker. And she says, being a Christian means inviting God to lead your life and be the forgiver of everything you've ever done against God and other people. We know God can do this because of what Jesus has done. It, make, it means rather than saying you can figure out your life and this world and how to make everything better, you're trusting God to lead your life and use you in all the ways that God is righting wrongs in our world. If you want to become a Christian, you talk to God directly and tell God your heart. How you invite God to be the leader of your life and the forgiver of your sins. Tell God you want to become His child. So these aren't so much based on story as on, you know, the, the essence of what it is to be a Christian, but some of those ideas might be fruitful in just thinking about how do I express why you know, I want to do things Jesus' way. So that's our third mission marker, you know, to be fluent in the good news, to get comfortable with the language of our faith and our story of following Jesus so that we could share these things that we would see the world the way Jesus describes it, as a white field that's ready to be harvested, full of people who God loves and who might discover a wonderful life with Jesus if someone is willing to share their story. I mean, if Jesus is worthy, let's find some ways to say so.